how we establish this restorative love as a foundation for social justice is that the primary and primal intervention of love in the corrupted rendition of law, of policing, of all the different factors that we see these days as we experience is that what we need to do with this restorative love is a reconfiguration of the dismembering of the body from the heart and the mind and the soul. The dehumanizing and dislocation of dignity as performed publicly, constantly. You've seen the YouTube videos. Some of you have been subjected to that treatment. It's dehumanizing and dislocation of dignity as performed publicly must answer the question of the sacral elements of the ruh, the ruh, the spirit that carries God breathed into the body when we are encased in the literal and the transcendental womb of our mothers. The spirit of God that is breathed into our body when we are in the womb of our mothers. This is what the Quran tells us. I'm transfixed by the vast multitudes of definitions in love in my tradition. One might spend a lifetime unlocking each word to discern how love plays this profoundly centripetal force. It magnetizes our being to our very beginning when God, the spirit of God, is breathed into the womb of a mother. You know, I have two children, and I don't know exactly when that happened, but I can tell you if you've had a child in your womb, you know that you are carrying a sacred breath. So the Quran says, the Quran tells us what is this body? What is this body that has the spirit, that has this, this ruh in it? What is this body? What does God tell us about this body that God has made? And God says, the most excellent, the most beautiful of all creations. So you and I, we, you and I, women, you and I, men, you and I, children, are ahsan taqweem We deserve to be in a life that is beautiful. We deserve to be in a country where black lives matter. Do you understand? Do you understand? Do you understand that these are sacred parts of our creation that we violate. So I was asked to talk about domestic violence as well. There's a lot to cover today. So what I wanted to talk about was that you and I are encased in the casing of love. The body is love itself. Your body, my body, is the manifestation of the creator's love. So bodies are important the violation of these bodies, we need to move beyond what is our right to harm a woman's body? How far can we go? What is allowed? What may a man do to his wife that is permissible? And return to the source of looking at Ahsan al-Taqweem. If this body of a woman, if this body of a woman has at its birth breathed into it the spirit, breathed into it something sacred, if this body of a woman, if my body and your body and our daughter's body and our mother's bodies and our children's bodies, if these bodies, if these bodies are ahsan taqweem we need to elevate the discourse and see the manifestation of restorative love, see a vision where there is no harm done to these bodies, 
where there is no harm done to these bodies. It is not a question of my right and how far I should go. It is not a question of how far I can go, how much I can hurt someone. It is a question of how do I restore and how do I view my body and your body as sacred? How do I live in a world where I practice a principle of no harm of such bodies? How do we work towards a society where women's bodies are not an interruption to society, where women's bodies are not policed, where women's bodies in their homes should be safest when we know the most unsafe place for a woman's body is often in her own home? What does that say? What does that say about our remembrance of the sacred? The second point I wanted to make here around the substance of the human body is that one of the most beautiful things that we bring to this restorative love that our tradition brings is a redefinition of strength. What does strength mean to you? What does strength mean to me? In a time when it's a competition of one body stronger than another, of my capacity to control your body, of systems established to control bodies, what does a restorative love process say? Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Prophet Muhammad upon him BP said, strength is not your capacity to dominate another body, it's actually to control your anger. Strength is not to go and control others. So in all these situations that we see where bodies are being controlled, whether it's through systems, whether it's through individuals, whether it's through however however we function, we have to redefine what strength means. We have to say strength is not the capacity to control human bodies, to do what you want with them. Strength is not a husband being able to tell his wife, do this and do it as I say and do it in this way. Strength is not the domination of another. That is not what restorative love from our tradition tells us. Strength is our capacity to be able to flourish and encourage and see systems and families and communities where we know that the hand, from the hand of a Muslim, you are safe. You are safe. When you are with me, you are safe. A husband tells his wife, when you are with me, we are safe. When we have in our schools people pulling young girls from chairs, that is not restorative love. That is not a system that we want to condone. That is not restorative love. That is not a principle of no harm. That is not strength. That is not strength. That is human weakness. That is human pathology. That is human sickness to take a body in such a way and do what has happened to it. So let's redefine strength. What does strength mean to you? So that's the substance of the human body. This beautiful, beautiful form that Allah reminds us again and again, the dignity of the human face, where our dignity is held. You know what Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, what Prophet Muhammad upon him be peace and blessings. If someone called his name, Ya Muhammad, Ya Muhammad, what would he do? Do you know? What would he do with his body? Do you know what he would do? He wouldn't just turn his, his face a little. He wouldn't just turn a little bit. If he was walking, if he was walking, he would stop. 
and he would turn his whole body and give his body full recognition of the other body who called him because our dignity is in our bodies. Our dignity is in our face, particularly in our tradition. So when your children are speaking to you, when we are about to get into an argument, when we are moving to a place where violence happens, it is the dignity, the connection, the face-to-face -face capacity of imbuing our conversations with love. That is strength. You know, we find now more and more in the work that we do internationally in conflict resolution that human beings are no longer asking just for rights. They're asking for dignity. They're saying, give me my dignity. Do not take away my dignity. Recognize my humanity. To be violent to someone, you must not see them as human. Do you understand? To be violent to a country, to be violent to a people, to be violent to a person, to be violent to a child, to be violent to a wife, you must not see them as human. You have taken away that sacred, sacred, sacred peace in all of us. Not only are we human, not only are you and I human as women, as humans, as individuals, we have within us the breath of something sacred. So you and I, all of us today, this is our contribution, a recognition that the human body is a sacred emanation, a sacred gift put on this earth. And why? And how do we talk about love? Ibn al-Arabi says William Chittick, a scholar on Islam. Ibn al-Arabi, says Chittick, begins his long chapter on love, Muhabba, as he begins most of the book's 560 chapters. You know, whenever I think about that, I think, wow, it must be nice. I wish I could have a chance to write 560 chapters. I'm trying to finish one book as a full-time professor. So there was a time when we were able to write like that. So Ibn al-Arabi um, says Chidik cited relevant Quranic verses and prophetic sayings. He points out first that love is a divine attribute. And he lists several of the Quranic verses in which, the, in which God is the subject of the verb to love. Fourteen of these verses mention that those whom God loves, and another mentions another 23 verses mention those whom God does not love. In every case, the object of God's love or lack of love are who? Human beings. Why not? We carry within us that breath. Indeed, the Quran associates love only with human beings among all creatures. Hence, love, Chidik says, is a key term if we are to understand what differentiates human beings from other created things. Most other divine attributes such as life, knowledge, desire, power, generosity, justice, mercy, and wrath have no necessary connection to the human race. Human beings are given the gift of love, of love. We are a manifestation of love. Our bodies our love. When Ibn al-Arabi, so this is Ibn, Ibn al-Arabi's contribution among Chirig. So when you and I talk about our Quran, this Quran that we love, this Quran itself mentions love so many times. Let no one tell you your tradition has no love. Look deep within it and we find love as a foundational aspect of our tradition.
So I wanted to get to the second point, which is how we approach and engage our own tradition around um, around uh, around uh, our, our, uh, the sources that we have in engaging our, our legal and our legal tradition as well. And then the third point I'll end with. Um, but I wanted to share with you a story because one of the things that uh, we have in the human form is the beautiful example of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Prophet Muhammad upon him be peace. And the Qur'an tells us what was the mission of this man? What was the mission of this community? And the mission is rahmatan lil'alameen, a mercy to all of humankind. A mercy not just to Muslims, a mercy not just to the Arabs in a particular time period and those who spoke Arabic, a mercy not just to one or two people, but a full mission of mercy. And so one of the things I'm going to talk about today is a situation that I learned to exhibit what it means to be merciful. And this is a very difficult story, but I will, I will share it. Uh, uh, Hasna asked me to. And so um, some of you know that my husband and I, after 17 years, we decided to end our marriage. So what we did is we turned to God and we said, dear God, if we do this, how do we do this with love? How do we do this with mercy? How do we respect these beautiful two children we brought into this world? How do we exhibit, even in the act of something that is most damaging, how can we be rahmata? How can we be a mercy to our children? How can we, as a family is breaking, be restorative? And God guided us. And God told us how to be. And we were able to use our, a restorative process of mediation for our own dissolution of our marriage. And we walked out best friends. And so I share that story because I want you to know that I want you to know that there's going to be a time in your life where you will be asked to exhibit mercy, where you may have to make the most difficult decision, but you put something else before you, where this tradition, even as we were doing something that was so difficult, doing something that would tear us apart for our, the rest of our lives, we knew that if we put God at the center, we knew that if we did what our tradition says, if we exhibited love and we respected these two beautiful bodies we had brought into this world, we knew that it would be blessed, and it was, and it is. And every day we wake up and we thank God that we were able to do it with mercy. So I share this story because I want you to know that it is possible, that it is possible even in the most difficult situations, and it is difficult. It is very difficult to show mercy in such situations, but, but we did, and we try, and we work on it. So I was asked to just share that story, and I, 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 told, uh, I told my ex-husband, I texted him, and I said, you know, I'm going to share this story because I think people should know. People should know that there are ways to exhibit love even when you are doing something that is the most difficult. And he said, I trust you, and I sh you should share this story because there is some beauty in it. There is some beauty in it. So here we'll pause from the first khutbah for those of us that are visiting and I will go into the next khutbah. 
And uh, the second part of the khutbah. Translation is, I say what I have said. May God forgive all of us. So in the second part, um, one of the reasons I chose this topic is that so often we have internalized into the interpretation of our own tradition only engaging Islam when we want to talk about violence, only engaging Islam when it is a problem, only engaging our identity and engaging in conversation with our own text when there is some form of, of uh, assumption that an outside interpretation is the one that will lead us to peace. One of the things I always tell people is, you know, I'm a peacemaker and I'm an activist because of my tradition, not despite my tradition. I didn't come to this place because I moved away from my tradition. I came to this place of love, of restorative love because of my tradition. So the love of the Qur'an and the love of the Sunnah. And I wanted to really be very clear here that I'm going to talk about Sharia. Sharia, or which is in the Qur'an, the, the term is also applied to Christians and Jews in recognizing that they also have a form of, of, of a life that they live that is connected to their deep and beautiful tradition. And so one of the things that our scholars have been uh, given us as a gift is a critical eye towards the deeper meaning of our tradition, the higher purposes, and articulating what we call the maqasid al-sharia, uh, according to scholars like Shatibi and others, this idea of the higher purposes of our Islamic tradition, the higher purposes of our engagement with our text. So there are beautiful things that have been covered, such the basic things around the principles of covering life, property. We've extended even to compassion for animals as very important. So the reasoning tool here is that beginning to look at our tradition, not just the text, but its practice. What are the higher, higher, um, higher reasonings behind it? So for me, this idea of restorative love is one in which I'm able to think about my tradition and go back to my text and say, how do I build a society in which restorative love emanates from every action I take? And how do I stand up for restorative love when someone else's body has been violated? Because it becomes incumbent upon me if I believe that you and your body have a right to be sacred and safe in this space, it's not just my body, but when yours is violated, I must speak up as well. We must speak up, but not just speak up. We have to think about what our tradition gives us. So more and more, the goal and the purpose that we often pursue are detectable in different contexts. So one of the things we need to consider is with mercy and compassion, sometimes Mercy and compassion are seen as weak positions. Mercy and compassion are seen as places where a community or an individual chooses forgiveness over something else. And what I think we have as a contribution in our community is to be able to say that it's the protection of the body, but it's also the collective community that restores that restores justice not just to an individual, but to the whole constituent. So when someone individually is hurt, our whole community stands up for that. 
Muslims in our congregational setting, Muslims in our ritual space, look at how we're gathered here today. Our manifestation of restorative love is not just within our individual engagement. Islam and Muslims are a community. We are a community of love. We are a community that functions so that when one person is crying, when one person is injured, we know that our whole community is injured. But take that also into account with this earlier notion of rahmatan lil'alameen, that we are to be a full manifestation for all communities in terms of standing up for restorative love. So when someone is hurt in my community, I speak up. But I also speak up when someone who is not from my community is potentially in a situation that is unsafe or difficult or their dignity is being violated. So I wanted to encourage us to think about how our tradition thinks about collective responsibility in restoring love and dignity to other human beings. More and more, I think this is the challenge of our time, is being able to speak up when we have no benefit, when we have no gain, to speak up. So I wanted to end with a perspective on justice and mercy. God describes God as the full manifestation of justice and beauty and power. God describes God. In our tradition, we have 99 attributes in which God describes God. And again and again, we say these manifestations, Ar-Rahman, Al-Adil, these, these manifestations, this, the way that God is, is manifested. The push towards justice is the measure of a society, the push towards justice as a measure of a society and a human are often emphasized and pushed as a key to religious identity. One of the misguided nodes, in my opinion, is the presentation of the relationship between rahmah, between mercy and justice, as a dialectical one. So are they competitive? Are justice and mercy competitive? And what I think is, in fact, it's not such that one exists only in the absence of another. If the ultimate reality, God, can reconcile both, then there's a question of why human beings must insist it's impossible. Might not the divine intervention of God be one in which we expand the linear lens beyond the simple structure of one-on-one? -on -one? By this I mean thinking of restorative justice as a way that society operates. So when someone does something and acts out in a certain way, so my first restorative justice case was a nine-year-old boy who had taken something, who had taken um, some money from the woman who brought, did the ice cream truck in her neighborhood, in his neighborhood. He was going to have to go to court. A nine-year-old boy was going to have to go to court, have a record. This restorative justice and restorative love model said, you know what? Let's do an alternative. Let's bring this woman and this young boy together, and let's facilitate a conversation. So my first case, this is several years ago, I sat facilitating a conversation between a nine-year-old boy who didn't have enough money to buy lunch and got money from a place that was accessible to him. And do you know what happened? The woman who, who owned the ice cream truck said, I love this boy. He and I are a part of a community. I want him to work and help me sell ice cream in the neighborhood. So this intervention of restorative love gave this young boy an alternative. 
it created and cemented a relationship that couldn't have been seen. The mercy that was extended by the woman who had the ice cream truck, but also the community that came together and built this program and said, you know what? We are responsible because we have not fed this young man. We are responsible because this young man needs a relationship that will change how he does what he's doing. That's part of what our Muslim community can bring to this conversation. Not to look at the deficiencies of people alone, but to understand what is our responsibility in having built those systems of deficiency. So this young man and, um, and the ice cream truck uh, operator, they now work together, we're able to work together. And this, imagine what this young boy would have done or what would have happened to him if he had gone through a punitive system. Imagine if the intervention had not been one of restorative love. What would have happened to this young boy? So as we do our work, what is our vision of restorative love? One of our great scholars of Islam, Imam al-Ghazali, talks about this idea of mercy. And what's beautiful about Muslims is, you know, we talk about one-on-one -on -one mercy, but we also really talk about systemic mercy. We talk about communal mercy. We talk about our capacity as a community to practice mercy, to be a community of practice of mercy. We're never just individuals here, which is really beautiful, because it means we're creating a system of mercy together. So Imam al-Ghazali says, mercy implies a pain-inducing empathy. Mercy implies a pain-inducing empathy which lays hold of the compassionate one. This moves the merciful person to satisfy the wants of the object of mercy. Mercy implies a pain-inducing empathy which lays hold of the compassionate one. This moves a merciful person to satisfy the wants of the object of mercy. So if I want to have mercy for Sister Disha, I actually have to be induced to some level of pain. Do you, do you, have you heard of the empathy gap? Do you know of the racial empathy gap in the United States? Do you know, do you know that if you look at sociological research, there is research that says that people do not believe that black bodies experience the same pain as other bodies. There is research that shows again and again that there are people who do not believe that people who are black experience pain in the same way as other races. What Imam al-Ghazali is telling us is for me to have mercy or compassion for someone else, I have to recognize the pain of the other person. I have to see that they are human enough to have that pain. When Hasna and I are in a conflict, sorry, this is my former students coming to the khutbah, I have to be able to see her dignity. But Imam al-Ghazali takes us even further. He says you have to recognize the pain and to be compassionate. So we have a society where the pathology does not lie in the bodies that are being, in the bodies that are being violated, it lies in the capacity of the inability to see the pain of someone else. It lies, the pathology here is, we are unable, as a society, many of us now, to see the full humanity of other people. I want you to take a minute to think about that. What does that do to the way a society is organized? Not just one-on-one -on -one conversation. What does it do when a society is organized 
in a hierarchy of who's allowed to feel pain. What does that do to a society? Where does that lead the pathology of the institutions that govern such a society? So one of the beautiful things of the intervention of a Muslim, one of the beautiful things of the intervention of a Muslim restorative love process is guess who has the infinite capacity to recognize and hold the pain of others? It's not you or I, it's God. Allahu subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allahu rahman rahim God the most merciful, the most beneficent. So in this capacity, in our tradition, we can lean on the divine to be more compassionate. We must lean on the divine. There's a hadith, a saying of the prophet that tells us, God does not show mercy to those who do not show mercy to others. The vertical relationship with God and justice that we receive from God is inextricably linked with the mercy we show fellow human beings. Divine interventions of love as the highest form of mercy. So you and I, we are here as, 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 as representatives of the divine. We're told we're put on earth for that purpose, to be, to be present and to bring, to, bring, uh, to bring those beautiful ways into this earth and to be rahmatan lil'alameen. So a co-creation of beauty on earth comes between the horizontal showing of mercy between humans. But the mercy between humans is based on the reliance of the divine light for expanding our hearts in that pursuit. If that human heart does not have that divine light in partnership, that human heart stays small. That human heart shrivels up. That human heart forgets its divine origin. So the parsing out of a justice that's just for you or a justice that's just for me, where we become complainants of an unfulfilled justice, we have to have a corollary in where we're actively engaged in seeking to build a society that is exerting mercy constantly. We love another human more when we begin to seek building a society where mercy instead of retribution is our operating principle. For the sake of love, not just between each other, but for the sake of God, we must exercise and build towards a society that exhibits a restorative love. My prayer for you is this. May you always, may you always, may you always be radical, radical, radical in love. لا إن الله يأمر بالعدل والإحسان وإيتاء ذي القربى وينهى عن الفحشاء والمنكر والبغي يعذكم لعلكم تذكرون. Such a beautiful ending which encapsulates what I hope was a message that came through today. God commands justice, doing good, and generosity towards relatives. And God forbids what is shameful, blameworthy, and oppressive. So we have on one side justice, 
doing good and generosity, on the other, the choice of shameful, blameworthy, and oppressive. God teaches you so that you may take heed. So I wanted to end with one of my favorite du'as, supplications, that's so, so um, beautiful to me. Especially in the time of forgiveness, we are not in Ramadan, but in Ramadan we seek forgiveness. And uh, I'm told, my children will tell me, they'll say, um, they'll say, you know, mommy, you can't yell at us because it's Ramadan and you're fasting from anger. And I'm like, oh God, yes, why, do you, why did I teach my children so well? But alhamdulillah. So, um, so the du'a I wanted to end with was um, this really uh, important thing around forgiveness. And it's also learning to forgive ourselves. Um, if you heard my lecture, my lecture um, was around uh, forgiveness and the example of Mary and Mary's mother from the Quran around uh, forgiveness. But I really wanted you to leave today also thinking about how you exhibit forgiveness for yourself, especially as a woman, because so many times the messages that come towards us are ones that are very hurtful, and I think we have to spend some time in really loving ourselves. So, um, so the, this dua is uh, about God is most forgiving and loves forgiveness, and I seek forgiveness. Allahumma innaka afuun kareem tuhibbul afwa fafuanna. اللهم إنك عفو كريم تحب العفو فاعف عنا اللهم إنك عفو كريم تحب العفو فاعف عنا So I have the pleasure of saying in the feminine plural instead of the usual masculine plural وأقمنا الصلاة Let's pray.